Welcome to Two Open Doors, the podcast that explores our power to open or close the doors of relationship with the important people in our lives. We hope you'll learn from and share your wisdom with our community. Thanks for joining us. As the potent force that it is in people's lives, sex is hedged with social norms, strictures, and expectations. Since sex is such a central individual and social concern, one might expect sexual expression to be a fundamental individual right. In actuality, sexual prerogatives differ across various social classes. Not everyone has uniform access to sexual opportunities. In this episode, we'll explore some of the connections that exist between sex positivity and social justice. The sex-positive community has a very diverse membership, which extends way beyond just white heterosexual members. As an example, the Portland, Oregon sex-positive community includes many people who are gender-fluid or transsexual or gay or lesbian, people from across the spectrum of gender diversity, sexual expressions, and sexual preferences. The community aspires to serve all of these subpopulations to ensure that they have free access to whatever sexual practices and opportunities draw them. Unfortunately, as we know, our society often fails to greet differences from the norm with open arms. Quite the opposite, as is demonstrated by mainstream treatment of gay or trans people. Because such discrimination can be very hurtful or damaging, the sex-positive community strives to be protective of its minority members. Any sex-positive organization is confronted by a very difficult decision of how to balance ensuring the safety and satisfaction of its minority members with the needs and desires of their mainstream constituents. That balance may be somewhat simpler for special interest sex-positive organizations, such as those which specifically serve a gay or trans or lesbian membership. For organizations with a broader membership, though, how to strike an optimal balance is often anything but self-evident. The chosen balance point can greatly affect the spirit as well as the offerings of an organization. It's important to address the desires of as broad a section of membership as possible. That goal plays into what sorts of events are offered, how the organization is governed, what membership requirements are put in place, and how individual failures to meet group norms and expectations are dealt with. To make matters even more complex, some organizations focus on delivering education through various vehicles, while others emphasize frequent social events, and yet others deliver touch events such as group cuddles or tantric or massage events. Each organization's focus helps shape how the needs of various segments of the membership are best served. As yet another sometimes subtle but essential complicating factor, the social experiences and treatment of each member subgroup can introduce needs and sensitivities that may not be as important to the population at large. Here again, legitimate subgroup needs may need to be weighed against the impact of respecting those needs while continuing to serve the population at large. Let's consider a few examples to make this all more concrete. Over many years, I've come to the realization of something that I've seen repeatedly. Our culture seems to promote a good many misogynistic attitudes. Most likely, these attitudes reflect the patriarchal roots of our Western culture. Women struggle to be treated fairly in the workplace and in their contributions at home. They're often confronted by males who hold toxic beliefs about how to properly be a man. Beliefs that they absorb at home, at school, in the workplace, and in recreational situations. In noting this, I don't at all mean to imply that I am a man-hater. However, these are things that I observe on a daily basis. Unfortunately, I know that I am in good company in that. Here are a few relevant observations and experiences. 
At an extended summer camp that I attended a number of years ago, fully half or more of the female attendees reported having experienced sexual trauma, as did a much smaller percentage of the males. That bodes ill for the basic feelings of respect and safety that are necessary for any healthy relationship to be possible. In a local poly group, which no longer exists, I was called to task for simply using the term sapiosexual, that is, sexual attraction to those with a perceived vigorous mental life. Some people associate that term with being classist or ableist, and thus with disparaging or failing to respect certain minority populations. Note that as originally introduced in the early 2000s, the term sapiosexual wasn't freighted with these overtones. A 2018 article in the journal Intelligence found that 90% of those surveyed were attracted by intelligent people, so this is a real and widespread preference. Since all human traits exist on a spectrum, it seems, to me, a bit perverse to fault preferences for intelligence over, say, preferences for physical beauty. As another example, another local sex-positive group has become embroiled in a great controversy over methods of pursuing leadership's perceptions of social justice at the expense of relegating the group's focus on bolstering a sex-positive pursuit of joy and sexual pleasure to second priority. That stance does not reflect the group's bylaws and mission statement. As a result, many mainstream members of the organization have left, weakening the ability of the organization to fulfill its goal of boosting sex positivity in society. That's a loss to all who value sex positivity. Probably few progressive thinkers would contest the value of ensuring respect and support for the minorities in our society. An exception might be those who believe that a monoclonal society that exclusively supports one particular set of beliefs and goals is best for society, but that's an extreme position to take. If we accept the necessity of allowing all groups access to society's opportunities and benefits, that leads us to consider how best to get there. I've seen two very different approaches used in the pursuit of promoting sex positivity across a population. I think these really manifest two very different philosophies of how to include and protect the rights of minorities. I'll call one calling out culture, and the second a calling in culture. In the calling out approach, a sexual minority is treated as being disadvantaged and disenfranchised to the point of needing to be militantly defended by the general population. For example, if a member of a sex-positive group witnesses something that they interpret as disrespecting or otherwise harming a member of a sexual minority, that observer takes on a duty to call out or directly challenge the perceived offender. I personally see many shortcomings in this approach not the least of which is that the challenged person may well react defensively and may become an active opponent of the observer and perhaps to the groups associated with that observer. Such a confrontational approach is polarizing. It is also driven by the observer's perceptions which may simply not reflect the factual reality or the offender's underlying motivation. None of us are mind readers and it seems to me to be presumptuous to put oneself in such a position. Taking a calling-out approach to correction also squanders an opportunity to make positive assumptions and then engage in a collaborative way with the offender. The low or no-tolerance approach implied by calling out may well create lasting animosity that can impede mutual understanding well into the future. In contrast, I'm a believer in a different approach which centers on calling in a person who may have committed a social faux pas rather than calling them out. In that approach, one seeks to present a potential offender with observations to make them aware of potential consequences of their actions. 
there is no initial presumption of guilt or bad intent. It's more of an education process based on honest inquiry and positive assumptions. It requires patience rather than draconian action. I believe that such an approach is much more likely to be met with a listening ear rather than a bristling spine, especially in a sex-positive environment where members view themselves as co-travelers on a shared voyage of discovery and liberation. Positive assumptions seem warranted. Of course, there are always some who basically refuse to conform to the group's agreed-upon norms and expectations. In such cases, it may be necessary to engage with a group's governance structure to prevent further unacceptable behavior. In my experience, though, that is an infrequent occurrence. Sex-positive behavior can only occur in a safe and respectful environment. Such an environment requires that the legitimate needs and desires of all constituent subgroups be secured. For the sake of social justice, the needs of the majority must be balanced against the needs of minorities. Creating that balance can be achieved in different ways, but I believe that needed guidance of member actions can best be accomplished through an education-based calling-in process that's based on positive assumptions about a straying member's motives. To learn more about Two Open Doors and to engage with our community, I'd like to invite you to visit the Two Open Doors private Facebook group for posts and discussion and the Two Open Doors meetup group for events. I also invite you to contact me directly by writing to me at claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, at twoopendoors.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll use your inputs to guide my work on future blog posts and podcast episodes. Thanks for visiting Two Open Doors.